Let's pray together. Father, we, we do believe that you are everything and we believe that we can trust you. Lord, you are far above us and beyond us. Lord, your ways, Lord, in so many ways we don't even completely understand them, but we believe today that your ways are better than our ways. So Lord, would you help us this morning to clearly see your ways in greater ways in our own lives, that we would see your plans, that we would see who you've made us to be. You'd bring clarity in our heart, clarity in our lives of what it means to be your servants, to be your children. And so, Father, we give ourselves to you this morning. We believe that your word is true. Teach us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, if you turn to 1 Peter 2, that's where we'll be this morning. There's a Bible in front of you. It'll also be on the screens. Um, should be in the seat ahead of you, but um, <clears throat> we'll be in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Today is an exciting day. Um, I'm going to just mention this. We prayed about it a little bit ago, but we are planting. Um, we, we commissioned them a few weeks ago, and they are meeting and gathering today um, <clears throat> in Akron for worship this morning. And I don't know if you, you just, I don't know, if you've been around here a while, maybe you do. This is just a really significant day for our church. And so, um, we're going to pray again at the end for them, especially this service, because they'll be meeting after this. But um, it's an exciting thing. Be praying for them all morning. God is doing a great work in Akron, and we get to be a part of it. And so, um, so thank you for your investment, and thank you for um, being a part of what God has done here in North Canton. So if you will, let's read together 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 reads, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." title of today's sermon, it's a kind of stand alone, um, it's called Standing Firm, and uh, what, what we have maybe more in our day, um, I guess, and I wrote that I think in the bulletin, that in our day, I, there are more challenges ahead of us than I've ever seen in my own lifetime as Christians. <clears throat> this text resembles certain things. Now, for me, I am, a, I am unapologetically and will always unapologetically be a man who stands pro-life. And because I take this stance, I would be called by some as an evildoer. How dare I allow a woman not to have the right to choose? Correct? Some of you may be here today. You might think that about me. That's a terrible stance for a man to take. 
this text, in many ways, as we look at it today, it's going to resound into the truths of our context. I think First Peter, if you haven't read First Peter in a while, I challenge you to do that over the next couple of weeks. Because First Peter was written to a group of, of Christians. Um, First Peter was written from um, Peter in Rome. Um, it would have probably been written to a group of Christians in the modern-day Turkey region. And, and, and what it was written about is it was a group of Christians that were, were in severe persecution. Um, severe persecution. They were disenfranchised. They were questioned. They were definitely at the margins of society. They weren't the center. They didn't write the laws. They weren't in government. They were pushed to the sides. And as they were pushed to the sides, Paul, or Peter, is going to encourage them, is this is how you live as a, as a Christian in a society that doesn't embrace your values, doesn't embrace your gospel, and doesn't embrace your king. Now, I believe I lived in an America at one time that Christianity was, right, we called things like the moral majority, where Christianity was very much at the center culture. I did grow up in the 80s, right? And in the 80s, there was a time where it seemed as though <clears throat> there was a, a Christian voice we knew presidents for years and years and years that would meet with Billy Graham. He was their spiritual advisor. Anybody with me on this? And, but what we've seen in our day, in our time, is, is a Christianity that has been pushed to the sidelines of culture. And the question that I think we have to ask ourselves is how do we stand firm and engage our culture without being washed away by it? And how do, how do we stay where we are? <clears throat> the feelings of the day, I don't know if these are feelings that you might have, maybe as you watch the news. Now, I will tell you this. Um, last election season, I had just moved to Ohio, and it was astonishing. I don't know if you know this about um, us that live in Ohio. But see, Tennessee wasn't a very, I guess, uh, important state. And so when we moved here, it was like, oh, my goodness. We heard more commercials, more media. I mean, it was just over the top. Ohio is an important state in elections. And just so you know, you receive, we receive, a lot more attention. And, in, and, and I think in many ways, it's harder for us to navigate because we're constantly having voices scream at us that you should do this, that you should do that. Are you with me? Even more so by media in, in our day. So the feelings that you might have today as you watch these things is you might have anger, right? You might listen or hear something and anger rises up in you. Anybody felt a little angry lately? There we go. You need to come down the altar at the end of the service and repent. Just kidding. <laughs> Nobody's going to raise their hand anymore. It's like, I'm done, right? Uh, <laughs> you might have excitement, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I, don't, I did. Go, go try. Uh, you might have excitement. I'm, I'm, just so you know, I'm going to tell you right now who I'm voting for. I'm, I'm voting for Terry Francona for president. So, <clears throat> or Kluber. Okay, so, because that's the best candidate I can see out there. You might feel fear. Genuinely in you, there may be fear of what is going to become of our nation. You may feel that in you. You may feel anxiety. Even maybe kind of a step around fear, like your anxiety is this thing that just kind of makes you breathe different, keeps you up at night, it, deeply troubling. And what you might find, and a lot of these work together, is just incredible frustration. 
Does anything any of these define where you might find yourself today? Well, for us, see, these things are rooted in belief. All these feelings are. They're rooted in belief. I believe the best thing that we can do today is to be reminded through God's word of of that which we believe. And might it begin to define us more and more and more? See, I believe that in our time, we're allowing other things to define us as the people of God. And don't hear me saying anything negative about that. It's just what's happening. It's doing it to me. We must let our beliefs inform our emotions. We must let our beliefs inform our standards. And we, we must be shaped by truth. And we have been given truth through God's word. And might we that sit in this room that are predominantly evangelical, I believe, that are sitting here today, not let presidencies, cultural shifts, and cultural changes, let, don't let it divert us from the truths in which we deeply hold. See, because there is an avalanche that is happening as far as morality and as, as, as far as standards in our culture. And many of us think that we have stood firm but we don't realize that we haven't stood as firm as we think we have. And I could go much deeper into that with many organizations and even evangelical organizations that have made some very peculiar statements in this election season in which their founders would have never, never said. So you can read through the lines with that if you want. We must let our beliefs inform everything that we are, and we must be shaped by truth that is revealed from God, not loosely defined by our experience. You see, we live in a cultural cascade, again, of sexuality, human dignity, familial confusion, of morality, and truth being shaped by whatever and whoever so chooses to define truth. Truth... See, simply is this, that Jesus has come and he has done a past completed work in our lives. This past completed work that Jesus has done is he came and he died on the cross for the sins of humanity. He was buried in a tomb, he rose from the dead, and he is exalted on high and he sits and he reigns and rules as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. We're going to go more into this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords in whom is our right, supreme ruler and the one in whom we bow our lives before and the one who leads and instructs and guides us as we live our lives. Jesus has come, this past completed work that he did for us on the cross, now with future implications of his servants today and for all days until we see him face to face and even then. See, and also his word has been given to us. It holds weight in our lives and shapes us. His Holy Spirit has been given as a seal, guide, teacher, who convicts, who shapes, again, who teaches us. And in all these things together, we creates in us a, a desire to glorify the Father and be shaped by all that he has given us. Now, Simply to say it like this, I believe in the day in which we live, if you are not very careful, the way you'll be washed away isn't how you think. The way that we will be washed away is very simple, very, very, very simple. 
If we stop believing the word of God is truth, and if we stop allowing it to shape our convictions, to shape our lives, to be the source in which all things come from, we will be washed away by our culture. And the, the way that this is happening in the church, the way that this is happening in the world, is we are beginning to allow our experience, our feelings, to be our guide. And if our feelings and our experiences speak as loudly as truth, we will not have a guide any longer, and we will be washed away with the rest of, uh, with the, rest of the world. We as a people, historically, and I'm, gonna, I'm just being a Protestant being an evangelical, being a Christian. We are a people of God's word. Now, I'm going to give some caveats to that because I have heard men stand in front of me and they hold this book up very high and they say, this is God's word and it is true. And the way in which they live their life shows something very, very different. So I'm not speaking about just saying, saying it with our words. All right? I'm not that naive. But what I am saying is that when we hold this book, we believe that this is God revealed to us, and it informs and it shapes not only who we are, not only how we should live, it defines every sort of truth that we can, that we can simply find within our own humanity. And when we stop believing this to be what shapes us, and our opinions begin to be that which shapes and leads and guides us. I believe we are in very serious trouble in regards to holding firm and holding firm to truth and living out God's ways in our own context. We are no longer wanderers in the desert as the people of God once were, but we can stand firm and engage our culture without being washed away by it. I believe this is true. And I believe that we at the North Canton Chapel, I don't know anywhere else, and I don't have a platform anywhere else, but in this platform, we must stand firm in the truth. So the text that we read, I believe, will help us do this. I believe it helps us do it, one, because contextually, the, the, the people it was written to is, were more like them than we know. Um, and two, I believe that this is God's word. And inside of this text are these and tangible, deeper things in regards to belief that have to happen in our lives in order for it to shape us outwardly into how we live. So there's three things, I believe, that as believers, in order to stand firm, we must never forget. The first, we must never forget who we are. We must never forget who we are. It says... 1 Peter 2 9, we, um, but you are, and so this, but you are, so this is a, you are, this is if you're in the South, this is another one of those y'all are, right, moments. This is um, here, um, you guys, right, that's, that's uh, by the way, people in the South totally get us confused on the you guys thing. It really does sound well and it does make sense. And so y'all, this is all of us, so but you are, anyone who's reading this, but you are, and this but is in contrast to what was a bed. And so in contrast, uh, <clears throat> that, that we are separated, we are, we are something different, that, that we, we have been set apart, it says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. So this is defining to us of our citizenship, and what you're going to see throughout this text is citizenship. 
It's about who do we belong to? Who rules and reigns? Who has authority? And so it says, but you are a chosen race, that you are elected by God. The Father has set you aside for his unique and divine purposes. I don't know if you are encouraged by much, but you are chosen by God. God loved you, and he chose you for his good purposes in this life. Now, you don't have to go around thinking about one of the problems with this doctrine is we want to do, we want to deal with it with the implications toward others. I don't think it's meant for that. I think the implications are for me, that I am chosen by God. It's like my daughter, I'm, 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 I'm praying for her at night and I'm saying, I love you, Kins. It's not arrogant for her to say, man, it's amazing. My God, my dad loves me. Just as it is for us, that you are a chosen race. Your God loves you, and he chose you, and he has set you apart for something significant. We'll get into that. We are a royal priesthood. This is something that God has always spoken of, not just in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament when there were priests. In Exodus 19, he will say that I am establishing for myself a kingdom of priests, that there is something holy and set apart in us, and we'll get to that. It says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a holy people because of the past finished work of Christ with, this, with the present implications of it, that we are a holy nation. You know, when, when we think about who God is, God is equally two parts, one, and which makes, and, and equally two parts, which makes him one, holy. We see this in Exodus 33, when Moses says, God, reveal to me yourself. Show yourself to me. Reveal, reveal all that you are. And he says, Moses, you can't handle it. Moses says, no, 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 God, I can handle it. Bring it. Come on, show me who you are. God says, okay. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock, and God passes by Moses. And God says this firm statement, I am that I am. This is this God saying, I I, I, I eternally exist. One day we will hear him say that in eternity and we will all fall flat on our face because of the booming power of his voice. I am that I am. And then he'll continue and he'll say, I am full of mercy and compassion and justice and love. These kind of words, which shows this one nature of God, this nature of of, of what, what I've experienced in my own life is this compassion where he sent his son to die for me on the cross. He was so compassionate for me and through me turning in faith and him coming toward me and redeeming me, what has happened is I have been made a new man and I have experienced the compassion of God in my life. Now this is where our culture loves to just camp out. God is love. And if God is love, then he can't dislike anything, and he just loves us all right where we are. And one day, all roads lead, all, all, all paths to the top of the mountain ultimately lead to God, and God is love, right? But see, it doesn't stop there in that text. He says, I am full of mercy, justice, compassion. And then it says, and I am also full of wrath and vengeance, and I will punish sins. And what we see in this is this God who is full of love and compassion and full of wrath, whose God is holy. Our God is a holy God in which sin cannot, cannot be in his presence, meaning in, in the implications of that is we need an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That atoning sacrifice came through the person of Jesus and the righteousness, the holiness that we now have is only through his son. 
But see, our God is a holy God. And then those who refuse and those who rebel and those who come against him will be cast away from him forever. And his wrath will be poured out on on them simply because he is a holy God and he must punish those that refuse and rebel against him. So our God is full of love and our God is full of wrath. And our God, these two things, makes him holy. I don't know if you've been around holy things much in your life. I've been around what I believe to be a few holy men in my life. And when you walk into their presence or when you step into the presence of God in a supernatural way, there's a weightiness that you can feel. See, our God is a holy God and a weightiness that we don't even know. One day we will how weighty his holiness is. And his holiness is so weighty that when he says, I am that I am, we will fall on our face because he is so holy. See, we are set apart as a holy nation, a people, it says, for his own possession, that we were made for his glory and his purposes. We are a special people to God, and we are valued by him. He ultimately displayed that by what he did through his son. So we are a people set apart. Isaiah 43, 21 says that you are a people I formed for my... Dis- I- People I formed for myself, declaring my praise. We are a people that are formed for God and for his purposes, not our own. We are a people formed by God for his purposes and not our own. We must never forget who we are, that my identity is not found in my parenting. My identity is not found in my job. My, my identity isn't found in my checkbook. My identity isn't found in the things I do or the things I say. My identity is solely found in Jesus Christ. And what he has said in this text that I am is I am chosen by him. I am a royal priesthood and I am a part of a holy nation. That I am set apart and I am a part of a system that far, far exceeds the United States of America. I am a part of an eternal kingdom that reigns and rules forever. And this is an incredible truth and an incredible thing. See, the danger of forgetting who we are, the danger of forgetting who we are is we will pursue worthless ideals. If we forget who we are, we must be defined by something. And so we'll pursue worthless ideals. And so what we'll try to do is we'll try to create some sort of version of a perfect life. Try to have perfect families. And if we can't attain these things, we'll feel as, we will feel as though we are failures, as though we haven't achieved. Has anyone in the room been in a place where you found out your family wasn't perfect? <laughs> but have you ever been in a place where you found out your family wasn't perfect and it just really hurt? Because it was more of your ideal that you were chasing than resting in who he has made you to be. See, when we don't find our identity in him, when these things that we're pursuing get slashed away from us, we end up in a spin and a twirl in our lives because we can't figure out what to do because something's been cut out from underneath us. Now, I say that I've been there in my own life maybe in recent years than ever, is that these ideals of being the perfect family are unattainable. It's impossible. The danger of forgetting who we are is we 
move toward pointless gains. Jesus says you can gain the whole world but lose your very own soul, which is worse. You can have all the riches, you can have all the money, you can have all the cars, you can have all the stuff, and you can pursue all of these things. But in the end, it's a pointless gain. It doesn't really achieve anything. We can have wasted hopes. So we place all of our hopes on this or that. I think when, we, when I think of wasted hopes, I think about it in, in regards to marriage. These wasted hopes is that we, we, we think that our marriage is going to be this hopeful. If you're single in this room, maybe you're feeling that way. It's this, it's this hopeful thing that when I achieve it, right, when I'm hoping that when I get married, that all the things that are troubling me in my life will be washed away, that, that everything will be made better. Did anybody feel like that before they got married? Anyone? You can raise your hand on that, right? It's all going to be better. And then you got married, right? You're like, oh, I love this woman, but this is much more challenging, right? That, that who I am is much deeper, and I didn't realize some things about myself, right? I mean, are you with me on this? We do it with temporary dreams, these temporary dreams, these things that we pursue for a lifetime even. Scriptures say that everything in this world is transient, temporary, fleeting, fading, here one moment and gone the next. The things that we pursue in this world at one time, at some point in our life, they will disappear. They will go away. I always use the story, you've probably heard me tell about my, I think about my 88 Grand Prix. I loved that car until the door fell off, right? It was this perfect and pristine car, and I'm in the middle of Kansas City, Missouri, like picking it up off the ground and somehow trying to get this huge door back on the car. What I thought to be perfect, or whether it was a house that was built 50 years ago or a person that was alive in 1802, everything in this world is fleeting and fading, and nothing lasts forever. It's a result of the fall. This world began to systematically fall apart when sin entered into the experience of this world. And so the application, what do we do? What do we do with, with never forgetting who we are? How do we, how, do we, how do we navigate the danger of forgetting who we are? We must accept who he has made us to be, and it must be more of a reality than any, any other reality and live in confidence that this provides. Remember our identity and refuse to be defined by anything else. That I remember that I am Ryan Johnston. I am a, I'm a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, set apart for the good purposes of God. This is what defines me. This is who I am. This is something eternal. This is something more. And I must live in this reality rather than the realities that will be imposed on me by culture. And all of those others, worthless ideals, pointless gains, wasted hope, and temporary dreams are what define the American experience. Now, don't hear me wrong. I am grateful to be an American. I am grateful to be, to, to be raised where I've been raised. I am grateful for the freedom of faith that I have. And I, I believe we should fight for it. I believe that it is essential. I, 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 I believe in these things, but I don't believe that every set of American ideal that we have now in our lives are godly. But what is godly is that I am a part of an eternal kingdom that reigns and rules forever. 
So we must accept who he has made us to be and live in confidence that it provides, remembering our identity and refusing to be defined by anything else. This is a battle that we have to fight. It's not something that comes naturally to us. The second thing that we must never forget is who we once were. We must never forget who we once were. It says in the text, it, <clears throat> read it again, it says, once, once you were not a people, actually I'm going to back up, it's in, in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here we go, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We must never forget who we once were, that we, he has called us out of darkness and into light. We were once not a people, but now he has made us his people. That we once had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Again, it's out of darkness and into light that I was blind and now I can see. That in my life, I was not a person that belonged to this eternal kingdom. But now he has made me as people. I have belonging with him. And I had once not received mercy, and now I have received mercy. Not, not just like these external things, which are very real, but that my soul, the deepest part of who I am, has received mercy. Because I deserved death and judgment, and I have been given life eternal through Jesus Christ. I mean, this is an incredible truth, and these are some things that we read too fast by in the scriptures, that we must never forget who we once were, that I was out of darkness, and now I've been brought into the light. Do you believe, church, that you were once blind, and now you see? But many times what we do is we see those who are still blind, and we act as though they should have sight just like us. And what many times what we show is that we feel like we have some sort of self-achieved sight. You and I do not. I read a book this week and a guy said, the next great evangelical leader is drunk at a bar somewhere this week. He thought this is kind of an astonishing statement. But what he was speaking of is the power of Jesus to bring sight to a man, redeem his life, and use him for great and eternal purposes Maybe the future of the church isn't found inside the walls of the church today, but a man who is going to be redeemed and God is going to do something significant with his life, transform him and change him. And right, the apostle Paul was holding coats when Christians were being killed. God redeemed his life and did something significant with it. And so in, in this deep belief that, that I have received sight, not forgetting, never forgetting who I once was, See, I believe we forget when we begin to condemn those around us because they're just simply blind. Now, if you're in the room, you may say, wow, Christians are really arrogant. They think everybody's blind that doesn't think like them. Believe if you've not been given sight to see the world through the lens of the gospel, I do believe I've been graciously given something amazing. And I want that for the world. And I want to proclaim the excellencies of him because I want the blind to see, because this blind man now sees. So said, we were not a people, but we are now his people. I once did not belong. I once was not a part of the team. I once, when, God, when, when they were out picking teams, I was the guy left on the sidelines that didn't get to play. 
It was my own, my own behavior, my own sin that disqualified me. But God now has made me a part of his, I'm on his team. I am, I am now a part of his people. I have belonging. And I had once not received mercy. That standing before God, I deserved, again, death and judgment. But I'm a man that has received mercy. And if you have given your life to Jesus, you, you can see. You belong. And you have been given mercy. And none of these things we have done on our own. We are not a self-made people. We are a holy and redeemed people that God has done something significant for and to in our lives. Do you believe that, church? We must accept, again, we, we, at, at, at the very level of, of our motivation for life, at the very level of motivation when I wake up tomorrow, remembering who I once was, it helps me to never forget who I once was. It helps me to be motivated by the gospel of what he has done through sending his son in my life. It helps me to live my life with grace and humility and mercy and kindness and joy and peace. Oh, these are the fruits of the spirit. See, see church, we, we must see who we once were, I believe, in, in order to bear fruit of any kind. Because when we set our eyes and our hopes on the gospel, Paul will say it, that we must set our eyes on him, fix our gaze upon him. Jesus will say it like this, that you must abide in me. And as we remember what he has done in our life, when the gospel is proclaimed into our heart of what, what we weren't and now what we are, what happens in our lives is we begin to, to move forward every day, every moment, because the gospel will lead us to glorify God in our flesh moment by moment and day by day. So the third thing that we must never forget is we must never forget who we are living for. We must never forget who we're living for. It says in the text that we are in reading on down in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we must never forget who we're living for. It says that we are sojourners, foreigners, strangers in a land. Do you believe that? That you are a foreigner and a stranger in this land because you now are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That we are exiles, that we are temporary residents, that this is not my forever home, but there's an eternal home for me. And I am going to right, let loose of this kingdom, let loose of this world and grab a hold of the next. This is kind of language of our savior. It says, let go and, and hold on to an eternal kingdom. Don't live for the temporary kingdom of earth, but live for the eternal kingdom in heaven. And then the text continues and says, abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Strong language here. And this is an abstain and abstinence kind of message of, of don't run toward the things that don't honor God. Run away from them. Flee from them because they wage war against your soul. 
This is strong language. We don't even typically talk about this kind of language of something waging war against your soul. Sin will eat you up and destroy your soul. That's what this text is saying. If you dabble in it, if you tip your toe in the water, or as Lot did, is he, he, he took his tent and he pointed it towards Sodom and he grew closer and closer and closer and became immersed. And how do we stand firm in the day in which we live without being washed away by our culture? Is we need to turn our tent as far as we can away from Sodom. We must make a resolve in our heart and in our lives to say that I am going to live and abstain from the passions of my flesh. And I want God to give me a new passion, a new desire, a new heart for godly and holy things that aren't about me, but they're about him. Really, the passions of the flesh have everything to do with extraordinary selfishness. And what a gospel-centered heart does is when when we we grow in our motivation for Jesus, it, it flips it and we become selfless. See, I believe sanctification, the growth of the Christian life, is really moving from selfishness and moving towards selflessness because we see our Savior as the ultimate selfless one. And what he is redeeming me from is my incredible amount of selfishness. It says to abstain, and then it says to keep your conduct. So there is actual morality, right, in life. There is a conduct in which we are to to adhere and to move toward in our lives. There's a way in which we are to go about life. It says, keep your conduct honorable so that when they come against, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he returns. See, we keep our conduct pure so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him that our message might not be convoluted by our behavior, that a gospel of love might not be convoluted by a posture of hate, that our message of grace might not be convoluted by a posture that would speak everything else but grace. See, we as a Christian people are a different and peculiar kind of people. We are people that are motivated by the gospel of our Savior more than anything else. See, I believe this, and this is, I'm just going to go like off on a little bit of a Ryan Johnston place here. I believe that the greatest issue we face, and I said it at the beginning, I'm going to press into it more, is allowing our emotions to be our guide. Allowing our experience to be our guide. And what I see in the people that some of you have posted on Facebook, and even not in necessarily like supporting ways, just you can read the articles and you can watch the evangelical world. And where we begin to divert is when we allow our emotions and our experiences to be our guide, our leader, and our direction. See, I... I could tell you a lot of my experiences and how they might define how I view things, but if that doesn't go through the grid of the Bible, it really doesn't matter at all. And we have an issue, and one of the issues we face is we have more generations in this room today than the church has ever seen in one room together. We are living longer, right? 
and we are seeing more generational gaps as time goes. Up to four to five generations that will be in this room at kind of one time um, today. And as generations see the world, they always see the issues of the generation before. Now, would we all be humble enough to say that our generation didn't get it all right? Would everybody be humble enough to say that, right? I'm an Xer. I don't belong to anybody. Uh, I'm just kind of a wanderer. I'm not a millennial. I'm not, right? I, I, I didn't get the tech thing. I was too old for that. And so us millennials, we're kind of in no man's land in the middle, But each of us are given our own baggage. But I believe where we come together, where we come together is simply this, in the gospel of our Savior. In the gospel of our Savior is where we come together, but we also recognize the issues. I believe the church for years got to live in this highly successful time frame where if we had good things on stages, we proclaimed good things, we didn't have to necessarily engage in culture much, but people just came. And when people came, they filled our buildings and they filled them. And then, and then we had pastor issues. And so we could go to another church that believed the same thing. And we could just all be good and okay. And for years, through the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, that was evangelical America. Anybody with me? No? That, that's, that's how we did things. And to be honest, one of the great things about that day and age is some of the greatest Bible preachers that I've ever listened to were alive in those, ages, in those days. Think about guys like... Like Stephen Olford, I may not know that name, or the great Adrian Rogers, the Billy Grahams, these great preachers, men of God. Henry Blackaby, I remember sitting in a room hearing Henry Blackaby, if you know who Henry Blackaby is, and it was this moment like, dude, this guy is so holy, like, you could hear a pin drop in this room, everything he's saying. The great Adrian Rogers was like that, I got to spend a lot of time around him, or Stephen Olford, the same way. These men that they were incredible anointed expositors and who proclaimed God's word. But see, our culture has shifted in, in many, many ways. And, and the culture shifting is what we've done, I believe. And I don't think this is like that generation or this generation. I think generationally what we've done is we allow our experiences to define us. And if I can't just like harp on this all day long is your experiences and your opinions don't matter. Truth matters. You could have met this person that believes this and lives this way, and it's totally against the Bible, but they're a really nice person. Don't care. Truth matters. Truth matters. And God's word is true. And at that very level, if we move away from his word being true, we will lose everything because we will have nothing to stand on. So this pastor, I believe that Genesis 1 through Revelation 21, are the inspired, authoritative word word of God. I believe that it is all literal. I believe that it is all inspired. And I believe that my job as a man, not even as a pastor, just as a man who's been redeemed by God, is the best I can in my lifetime to wrap my life around this book, not to manipulate this book around my life. And I believe the great issue we face in our day is we are we are trying to wrap this book around our life. I'm saying that wrong. We're, we're trying to impose all kinds of things on this text to make our position stand instead of reading it as it is and wrapping our lives around it. We cannot let our emotions be our standards. God's word is the standard and it is full of truth. We must not let our peace rise and fall on the nation we reside 
but on the kingdom we belong. And that kingdom we belong to is fully revealed through this book. So for us today, in conclusion, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 21. In this parable, it's of two sons. It's not a common parable. You may not have heard of it. It's not, you know, it's not like the loaves and fishes. It's not the raising from the dead. It's these two brothers. And he tells one brother, he says, he says, go and work in my vineyards. And the brother says, no. But then he goes and he works in the vineyard. And he says to the other brother, go and work my vineyard. He says, yes. But he actually never goes and works in the vineyards. And then Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he says, who has done the will of the Father? And they say, well, obviously the first one who actually did the work in the vineyards. And he says, oh, you scribes and Pharisees, you don't even see it. You're the, you're the second brother. You proclaim that you're working in the vineyards, but you do nothing. But the first brother, although he said no, in the end did the work of the vineyard. See, I believe that for us, we must get to work. And that work starts at the level of identity, of knowing who I am. That work starts at never forgetting who I once was. And that work starts about never forgetting who I'm living for. This is the very fundamental beginning work of being a part of vineyard labor in regards to that parable. We must not claim to be something we reject to practice. See, the second brother... He claimed to be something, claimed he was going to go do something that he rejected to practice. See, I think at the base level for us as Christians, it has, should, always, hopefully, will be, is that we are a people that the vineyard work begins at the very basis that there is truth in which we labor from. And that truth is God's word. See, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. It is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is perfect. So today, what do we do? I simply would say this. We must consecrate our hearts to the Father freshly anew today. And hopefully, in the fear and anxiety and frustration and discouragement, can be melted away in our life by peace and love and joy and confidence in the one who reigns on high because Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the one who came, the only one who has ever came, and he died on the cross to redeem us from our sins. And he is the only one who is seated on high forever. Because see, he doesn't have a four-year term. He doesn't have an eight-year term. He doesn't have a 12-year term. He is not corrupt in any which way, but he is perfect and he can be trusted. And he is the one in whom we trust. And so what do we do today, church? Might we consecrate our hearts to him? Might we yield ourselves to him? Might we surrender ourselves freshly and new to him today? That in this week ahead and in the months ahead, that we have confidence unwavering in him and his truth, and we live according to it. Let's pray. Father, we believe that your word is true. Simply today, Lord, those of us in this room that have consecrated our hearts to you, who have 
who've, who've given our lives to you to be our Lord, to be our Savior, to be our leader, to be our master. Lord, we believe that we are chosen, that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a holy nation that far transcends this world. Lord, we believe, we believe that we once were blind. We believe that once we did not belong. Lord, we believe today that we were a people that do not deserve your mercy, but you have given it and we thank you for your grace. Lord, we believe today that we are exiles and strangers on this earth but Lord, called to abstain and conduct ourselves rightly. And so Lord, would you help us to rise up as your church to consecrate our hearts freshly to you today that we might stand firm. And Lord, even if we're the only ones, Lord, we believe standing firm in you for your honor and your glory is the most worthy thing that any person can do. Lord, for the person who's never trusted you, Lord, would you give them faith today to give their life over to your leadership and your lordship, Jesus. Give them the strength to repent, to turn from their sin, to place their faith in you for the first time today. Saying they believe that you came, that you died, that you rose. Help them to express their desire for you to be their Lord and Savior. Lord, help us as a church today to consecrate our hearts and lives to you, to not be pushed around by our culture, but to stand firm in your love, in your grace, in your kindness, in who you've called us and who you've deemed us to be. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand. This morning, the altars are open for you to come, maybe to freshly consecrate your heart to the Lord. Um, maybe to freshly pray for our land. Um, whatever God is leading you to do, maybe it's to come to know him. We invite you to do so as we sing.